As you're being seated, go ahead and find your Bible and turn it on, open it up. We're going to be in James chapter 4 today, James chapter 4. It's about 15 years ago, I was at a conference and I heard a a talk that had a a real impact on my life. It was by a guy by the name of Andy Stanley, you may have heard of him before, but he spoke on that day, uh, Choose to Cheat. And that's a very odd title for a preacher to speak on choose to cheat because we're normally the ones reminding you not to cheat and to try to do the right thing. But here was the premise of his talk, and you'll see why it impacted me. He he talked about how life is full of so many opportunities, especially 2019 life, that it can almost be overwhelming. I mean, think about how many options you have just for lunch. You know, what's for lunch? That's the big question in the car, right? And all those different options that that you have. Or how many options do you have to watch TV? When I was growing up, we had channel 4, 5, 8, 11, 13, 21, 27, 52, 58. That was it, you know. Now it's, uh, you know, 100 channels plus YouTube TV plus Netflix plus Amazon Prime. And so you just have all these different opportunities to, to watch things. And, and, and there's all these choices that we have to sort through. And every time you say yes to something, you may not realize this, but every time you say yes to something, you're also saying no to something. And finding that balance between the two can be very, very challenging. You say yes to that new job that pays you 20000 more a year. But in saying yes to that, you may be saying no to your child's soccer game or even to your own mental health. You say yes to that incredible deal. Hey, hey, I found this guy, and he got me 75% off, and we can do this, and it's only going to cost us $3,000. It's an incredible deal. We can't miss this. And you say yes to that, but you may be saying no to your retirement or to your kid's college fund, right? You say yes to that extra bowl of Rocky Road ice cream. <laughs> I'm a Rocky Road guy. Is, is anybody else a favorite Rocky Road? Okay, we got, we got a few righteous people in the crowd. Uh, how many of y'all's favorite is vanilla? Okay, okay. Early service, there were a lot of vanilla. I don't get vanilla. Uh, you know, to me, ice cream has to be calorie worthy. And for it to be, <laughs> for it to be calorie worthy, it has to include chocolate. I mean, it has to have chocolate, but you say yes to that uh, extra bowl of Rocky Road ice cream or to that second hit of the snooze button in the mornings, and you may be saying no to some things that are very valuable to you with your health. Every time I say yes to something, I'm also saying no to something, and the flip is true as well. Every time I say no to something, I'm also saying yes to something. Yes and no have been arrested, and they're handcuffed to each other. They don't go anywhere without one another. Over time, I had a business guy teach me this one time. He said, over time, you rarely get what you want. We talk about what we want in life. He said, over time, you really rarely get just what you dream about having. Instead, you get what you choose. You have a series of yeses and nos, and those things that you decide upon, they wind up with the power of the Holy Spirit guiding the events of your life. So I remember sitting there that day, and Stanley's talk hit me like a ton of bricks because he said, you have to choose in your life where you're going to cheat because you don't have time or energy to do everything that's available to you. Now, what's more, 
people will cheer you on to exhaustion and burnout. That's the way that our culture works. Hey, you, you're doing great. You keep going. I, I, I'm, I'm your biggest fan. And they'll cheer you on to exhaustion and burnout. And in most cases, once you hit the wall, they'll forget about you. So where is it in your life that you're going to choose to cheat? You can't do it all. You have to choose how you're going to spend your days and what you're going to say yes to. Here's what I've observed. Usually, we choose to cheat the foundations of our life. And the reason for this, think about your house, it's not as easily seen. So when we choose to cheat a foundation, it takes a while for it to be seen. And so we cheat our families because we feel secure there. They love us unconditionally, so we'll cheat there a little bit. Or we'll cheat our health because I feel good today. It'll be okay. Or we'll cheat our soul. And we do this little by little, day after day. And, and nobody really seems to notice because it's down low uh, in, the, in the attention level. And nobody really notices until everybody notices. And, and usually... We will cheat our walk with God. So we have so many things competing for our yes, so many things we want to do. A lot of these things are good things, and frequently in saying yes to this, yes to this, yes to this, we wind up saying no to God. And we don't, we don't really have prayer times. We don't spend time reading the Bible. Maybe we say yes to things financially that takes away from our ability to give to the church. Uh, we're not at church. Other things always have priority. But we say to ourselves, God loves me, and so it, it'll be okay. And what we don't see is that as our lives are shifting, cracks are forming, and those foundation areas of our life may be causing uh, the totality of our life to be in jeopardy. We're in James chapter 4. I've never seen this passage on a Christian coffee mug. I do not think Joel Osteen's going to write a book on this chapter because this chapter is up close and personal. It begins with a pointed question, what is the source of fights and wars among you? What's causing all these fights? And James says, hey, stop playing the blame game. The fights are not a result of the fact that your mom and dad potty trained you incorrectly. The fights that you're having are not a result of society that you're in or your boss. He says the source of those fights and wars that are on the outside are actually an overflow of the hedonistic passions that wage war within you. And so last week we talked about this and we worked through the first four verses of the first three verses of the passage where we talked about how the external fights are a result of the internal realities. And so here's six quotes from last week's sermon. Uh, if you didn't get to hear it, you can catch it on our website or you can actually catch it on our Facebook page live as well. Uh, but quote one, outward actions are a result of inward thoughts. Fights and conflicts begin with a thought virus. Fights and conflicts occur when we have selfish desires and then we set out to fulfill them on our own. If your first thought is protecting what you have, then you don't yet realize the source of what you have. God is always able to give you what you want. He may even be willing to give you what you want, but you may not be ready yet to handle what you want. And then number six, when our thoughts and our hearts honor God, our actions will follow. So let's pick up this in verse four, and James is just a bit intense here. He begins with, you adulterous people, <laughs> exclamation point. 
Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So what is James saying here? He's saying that you are fighting with each other because you have chosen to cheat, and where you've chosen to cheat is in your relationship with God. Rather than seeking godly wisdom, rather than seeking biblical truth, rather than living all of life as followers of Christ, the church there at Jerusalem where James pastored had become a broken family. Publicly, they had a relationship with God, but inwardly, secretly, they were really in love with the world. And so, they, they talked about God as if they loved Him. They said the right things. They just never actually talked to God. If you were to talk to them about the Bible, they, they, you know, the Bible is truth. It's truth without mixture of error. I, I believe in the Bible. They just didn't actually live it. They didn't actually take that truth and then take it to their lives. So hear me on this, okay? Make sure to tune back in. I know it's fall. The heat's starting to come on. It gets cozy and starts feeling like Thanksgiving, right? Right? When the church falls in love with someone or something other than Jesus, the church is having an affair. And James says to this church that he loved dearly in Jerusalem you guys are committing spiritual adultery. The gospel is fundamentally about Jesus. The gospel means good news. What is the good news? The good news is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, is doing for us, and will do for us. Jesus is the heartbeat. He is the focus of the gospel. When you want to know what is church supposed to be all about, what is my spiritual life supposed to be all about? Where should I be focused on? What is supposed to be uh, where, my, where my love is being centered, up, centered to or, or given to? It's all about Jesus. And when something else or someone else begins to take that place, that relationship of Jesus, guess what? We're, we're moving into a point where we are choosing to cheat on God. Now, cheating rarely starts out as cheating. It begins with a thought virus, which then begins to creep into your soul, and then it, it just starts creeping out a little bit. So look at the last part of verse 4 again. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Hey, listen, I'm not an enemy of God. Uh, the world and I, we're just friends. It's it's. It's not that big of a deal. Let's don't make a huge deal out of it. We're, we're just friends. Or maybe we say, you know, I, I was young when I met God. <laughs> we were young. I've grown a lot. I, I need to see what's out there. Or we say, hey, the gospel, it has a few scars. And this idea that Jesus is the only way and that God is uh, exclusive in this, it, it's offensive to some people, so we need to kind of go a little different direction, or I, I like the grace part of the Bible. I love amazing grace. I love the stories of grace and forgiveness, but the godly living part, I mean, come on, Lash, nobody really does that anymore, and so it begins. 
Just a little bit of cheating here and there in our relationship with God, and before you know it, it's taken you farther than you ever thought you'd go. It's kept you longer than you ever thought you'd stay, and it's cost you more than you ever thought you'd pay. And then you start looking at your life, and you're like, why is it that everywhere I go, I'm, I'm in fight and conflict, and I have all these broken relationships? Listen, there's enough fighting and conflict in the world without you. And you start, when you start becoming a participant in that and you start looking around and, and, and everywhere you go, there's just this, this string of, of broken relationships. And so you look inwardly at your relationship with God. Hey, just, has Jesus become your ex? He used to have a good relationship with him, but now, now he's, he's the ex. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? One of probably Jesus' most famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. I'm not going to read the entire story today, but it's an incredible story of forgiveness, hope, family, love. There's a lot in there about the challenges of family life. That's why I love the Bible. It's just so real. But there was this man who had two sons. These two sons grew up together. They shared a bed whenever they were young. They would fight over the Nintendo. Every Saturday morning, they would have to get up and wash the chariot together, and they would run down and go fishing in the Jordan River. They were brothers, and they just grew up together. Well, as they get a little bit older, the younger brother decides he's going to go on a trip. Specifically, the younger brother took three metaphorical trips. The first trip that he went on was a trip of entitlement. Now, think about your life and how many people you're wrestling with on a daily basis who are wrestling with entitlement. And so the younger brother goes to his dad, now think about the audacity of this, and says to his dad, I want you to give me what is mine. Give it to me. I want mine. And so he receives his share of the inheritance, and he continues on his trip of entitlement. That then leads him to a second trip, which was a trip of envy. He started wanting things that God had not yet given to him. To put it into my little mind, he started thinking, you know, I am tired of Little Murphy, Texas, where we have a chicken place on every corner and a new hamburger wannabe place every, moving in every month. I'm tired of this. We have plenty of mattress stores already in Murphy, I don't need to start a new one. I need to venture out. I'm tired of Little Murphy Church and all that I have known and the people that I've grown up with. I'm tired of Wiley High. Dad's rules are just so oppressive. He's always, he's always coming down on me. I'm tired of the life that God has given me. There has to be something else. And so he started envying that something else. And so he leaves home. And I see him traveling to Rome, and there beneath the bright lights of Rome, he gambles at Caesar's palace. And then he goes down to Egypt, and he scales the ancient pyramids of Egypt, and from the top of the pyramid, he takes a selfie. He storms a few castles with the Vikings. He parties with Alexander the Great. He lives it up. I realize that none of those guys overlapped each other, but just stick with me, okay? He thought he was so smart, he would tweet and he would post things that were against the very values with which he was 
raised. He rejected those who truly loved him, those that had walked with him, and he began to embrace those who all they wanted to do was use him. But he was entitled. He was envious, and he wanted to pursue this, and then it led to the third trip, which was isolation. One day he wakes up, and all the money is gone. He decides he's going to get on his cell phone and see if he can open up a charge account, yet his cell phone's shut off. He looks around for a good job, but there's no good jobs because the economy has gone into, there's been a famine in the land and the economy's gone into depression, so there's no good jobs, there's no food. He looks up for his friends and he realizes that his entourage is gone, and so he looks up and realizes that God has become his ex. Back to James 4 and verse 5. Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says the Spirit spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely? Now, verse 5 is actually a a very difficult verse to interpret. And it it can be interpreted a couple different ways, and scholars differ on this. The most common way that it's usually taught is that the Holy Spirit who is made to indwell believers, is envious and desires for you to draw near to Him. And so, so this preaches really well because the Holy Spirit's sitting at home waiting for you. He's waiting for you to text or waiting for you to call or better yet, come home. It fits that parable of the prodigal son really well because you think about the father who each night he, he cooks dinner and then he puts up the dishes and then he goes out to the porch and he just looks for his son to come home again. And his heart longs for his son. Preaches really, really well. The only problem is I really don't think that's what verse 5 means. As I kind of dig into it, I think it's, it's not the coming home moment. It's the coming to your senses moment. Within our spirit, there is this sense of envy. There is this battle that goes on, these passions that are waging war within us. And we think, I want this, I need this, I have to reach out for this. And so there is this battle going on. And in the end, it leads you to emptiness. And I think verse 5 is really the coming to your senses moment. So in the parable of the prodigal son, he finds himself sitting in the pig pen. And he realizes that everything his spirit envied was in reality empty. Just empty. And it's the moment when you realize that you are empty, that your wisdom and your envious ways have led you astray, that you're a sinner in need of grace. And that's what leads us to verse 6 of James 4. Into this emptiness, into this spirit of envy, into these wars and conflicts that are taking place, into these thought viruses that are taking root in our soul and infecting people around us, the Bible says, but He gives greater grace. 
His grace is greater than the battle that is going on within you. And therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and you find Hannah's prayer, where the Bible talks about how the Lord resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's the foundational story that leads you to King Saul's life, where when he was humble, God raised him up, and then in his pride, God took him down. You see it with King David as well, and his humility, he stared Goliath down, and he overcame all these obstacles to rise to the height of power and yet in his pride he once again fell and then God raised him up again in humility and you see that all throughout the Old Testament that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble grace does not run to embrace us in our pride grace clothes us and welcomes us when we return when we come to it in humility the first step of a walk with God is that humble recognition that you're empty that you need grace. So, back to the prodigal son. What was the moment? Do you remember the moment when his life changed forever? Where was he? He was in the pig pen, and what was he dining upon? What was he dining on? Slop, yeah. Nothing can be more repulsive to a young man from Jerusalem High School than eating pig slop. They despised pigs. This would be like an Aggie sitting in a field full of longhorns, okay? This just didn't happen. It, it, but it was in this humiliated state that the war that was within him began to calm and grace began to flow. Three things about him. Number one, he came to his senses. He began to realize, I've done some really dumb things. I've been on this entitlement trip. I've been envying thing. Number two, he no longer felt entitled. He was willing to go home, and if his father would just take him in, he would even work as a hired hand. And number three, he had a spiritual awakening. He admitted his sin against heaven and against his father. I want you to know this, that no matter where you've gone in life, you do not go beyond the reach of grace. And that the grace of God, that God, the grace of God that He extends to you is greater than the sins that you've committed against Him. Grace doesn't make sense. That's kind of the whole point of grace. It doesn't make sense. You don't deserve it. Grace, we sometimes think of grace as something that just brings amnesia into our life. But grace doesn't erase the past. In fact, we still live with a lot of the consequences for what's happened. Grace can't erase what's already occurred, but it can forgive what's already happened. You may still live with some scars in your life for the rest of your life here on earth, but you can be forgiven. Grace becomes the antidote for our fights and wars because when you find yourself safe in grace... When you understand that God loves you and that you have a position of security in the love of God, you don't have to spend your whole life building your kingdom. You can try to be building His kingdom. And so I think Jesus told the parable because He wanted us to know that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, or no matter how long it has been, no matter how far you have strayed from the Lord, you can always come home. And when you quit trying to be God and you return to the Father and you ask forgiveness, and rather than living your life in pride, 
you come to the Lord in humility, the story says that the Father runs to meet you, arms opened wide in forgiveness, and He celebrates your return. My friends, this is the goodness of grace. Grace is good. You remember that hymn? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Funny thing about grace. It is the greatest gift that God has ever given us. And often it's the last thing we are willing to give others. Are you a gracious person? It's perhaps the lost art of life. Let your graciousness be known to all, Philippians says. The Lord is near. How do you become a person of grace? It's more than a thought. It's more than a theory. The way that you become a person of grace is to draw near to the Lord. And when the Spirit starts living in you and through you, guess what? You become a person of grace. Now maybe this sounds soft to you, but grace is the most powerful thing you can bring to a fight. Give it a try. Be a grace-filled, gracious person. Give it a try. Grace doesn't mean there's no consequences. It doesn't mean there's not a right and wrong, but you know what? If you become a grace-filled person and a gracious person, you, maybe you'll find that peace that you're really looking for. And that emptiness that just nags at you, it can go away. When you quit clenching the fist and open the hand, say, God, Fill me with your grace so that I might extend it to others. Would you guys be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please? And The band's going to come. We're going to have a time of commitment. I want to give you time to talk to your Lord. Perhaps you want to pray at your seat while others are singing. Perhaps I could pray with you. I'm here at the front. My wife is here as well. Sometimes in life it does help to take a prayer walk and to come and kneel at an altar and say, I need to mark this moment in life. And so our altar is open right now if you'd just like to come and pray at the altar. During this next song, if you'd like to come and pray at the altar, if the Lord's really speaking to your heart, I invite you to do so. Father, I do pray that we will take these truths that we have seen today and that we will have wisdom to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. Help us, Lord, not to cheat in our relationship with you. Help us, Lord, not to drift into a pattern of thinking and a pattern of living that draws us away from you. But help us, Lord, to live our life for your honor and your glory. And I thank you, Lord, that you, you give us a grace that is greater than the envy, a grace that is greater than the challenge, a grace that is greater than our sin, so that we might be raised up from the pig pens of life and raised up from the, from the pits of pride to experience you. 
Lord, I know in the room today that there are some serious conflicts that are brewing in our lives. I pray that you will have, you will give us the wisdom to stand for that which is right, to be strong people knowing that our strength comes not from our inner self, but our strength comes from the security that we have in your grace. So Lord, may our graciousness be known to all because we have drawn near to our Lord who is a God of grace. It's in his name we pray and worship. Amen. Let's stand together, church.